All right, our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you have your app, you can turn there as well. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. The words of Jesus. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It is a privilege for me to be up here and share God's Word with you today. Um, I actually looked over this message last night in my garage where it was about 40 degrees in preparation for this cold gym this morning. Uh, I know it's not a comfortable 72 degrees as we're here together, but it is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Uh, My name's David, and I am the church planting resident here at Doxa. If you are visiting with us this morning, or if you're a a member here, uh, you should know that Doxa Church believes in making disciples for the glory of God. As Christians, we've been saved by God through faith in Jesus Christ, and we have been sent by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to make disciples for the glory of God. And when God is glorified in our lives, we experience joy in our hearts. Kind of makes me think of the the question that we had this morning in our catechism. God made us male and female in his image to glorify him. And when we live for his glory, we experience a profound sense of joy. When we think about living for the glory of God in terms of discipleship, biblically, the context where we see discipleship taking place most often is within the context of the local church. So if you care about being faithful to the command of Jesus to make disciples, then you have to care about the established local church, and you have to care about the establishing of new churches through church planting. So it's out of this desire to be great, to be faithful to the Great Commission that my family, uh, my wife, my three kids, myself, Phil Naparella is going with us as well, Um, With the support of this church, we are moving to Plymouth, Massachusetts this summer to begin the work of planting a church in an area that is starving for gospel-centered churches. And I continue to put that before you week after week, every time that I'm up here, because the day is coming very, very soon where I will not be able to say that anymore. And then you will miss hearing me say that week after week. We're roughly six months out, church. Six months out from packing everything up, selling our house, moving to New England. And uh, just in saying that, it brings both a sense of sadness, but also a a deep sense of joy. Uh, That's going to be a bittersweet day for our family. But we're so excited to see what the Lord is going to do. Because if he doesn't plant a church in Plymouth, then the church is not going to be planted. And the reality is, is true. That same reality is true for us here as well. God will be the one 
who builds his church, as we cry out to him in prayer and seek to glorify him in everything that we do. Well, today, we're going to continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount. And specifically, we're going to look at what Jesus has to teach us in the Lord's Prayer. So let's pray together, and then we will look at God's Word. Let's pray. God, we come to you today as needy children who need to be with their Father. We want to be near you. We want to experience your presence with us. We're desperate, God, for the living water that only you provide. Thank you, God, that you do not get tired of us crying out to you. What an unbelievable privilege it is for us to be able to cast our anxieties on you because you really do care for us. Forgive us for having a low view of you that hinders us from running towards you. You are the sovereign ruler of the universe. You have held the the oceans in the palm of your hand. You measured off the heavens with your finger. Yet your yoke is easy and your burden is light towards your children. We were spiritual orphans, but now you have adopted us into your family. God, thank you for causing us to be born again. Thank you for the gift of faith. Heavenly Father, we as a church together collectively now ask that you would move for your glory across the Grand Strand. We pray that you would save people who are lost. We pray that wandering and confused Christians would be drawn back to you and drawn back to your church. We pray that you would strengthen the church in this community. May there be no spirit of competition or pride when it comes to our churches. God, we pray that there would be a spirit of unity between the churches who are seeking to be faithful to you. Father, as we look at your word today, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it would come alive for us. May your presence, God, be mediated through your word. We are a people who are so easily distracted. And Satan would love nothing more for our attention to stray off of you this morning. So we we ask for the Holy Spirit's help. We pray that you would keep our focus and our attention on you. Help us to truly worship you as we think deeply about you. We pray that you would make us humble worshipers of you. People whose lives are presented to you as a living sacrifice. We need you, Lord, every minute of every day. So now we ask that you would bless our time and your word for your glory. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look at the research, there is a lot out there that should encourage us. I recognize, and I'm going to clean up Mark, Mark Twain's quote here, that there are lies, darn lies, and statistics. But listen to a few of these stats when it comes to prayer. These are from a couple of years ago, but I still think they're, they're very relevant to where we are today. According to the Pew Research Center, 55% of American adults say that they pray at least once a day. The Barna Group's research, they put that number even higher at 64%. And these aren't just people who identify as Christian or who check the box saying they're a little bit religious. This is Americans across the board. 
There was even, I thought this was super interesting, there was even a small percentage of atheists who acknowledge there are times when they pray. According to Barna, and this is a quote, prayer is by far the most common spiritual practice among Americans. But that's, that's the country at large. Maybe all those Christians over in Texas, they're skewing the numbers for everybody. What about right here where we live? Listen to this, the, the Florence Myrtle Beach area, that was categorized as one area. The Florence Myrtle Beach area was the fourth most consistent prayer city in the country. 90% of people saying they pray once a week. And in that study, the vast majority of people who were surveyed were self-identified Christians. Are you surprised by those numbers? I was shocked to read that and see that. And I, it honestly, it encouraged me. But I'm afraid that those stats don't tell the whole story. At least the stats that I just shared. If you dig a little bit deeper, sort of past the initial headlines, we see some stats that are a little less encouraging, like this one. There is a significant decline in frequency of prayer as education and income increase. Not, not necessarily surprising, but no less troubling. It seems that churches that are filled with educated and well-off people easily forget how dependent they are on God. This one especially hurt to read. 96% of people who pray are praying alone. It seems that we've, we've really taken to heart Jesus' statement to go into our rooms, shut the door, and to pray. And that's good. We should take that to heart. But we, in, in general terms, we have totally neglected the corporate aspect of prayer, which is absolutely essential for us. Corporate prayer among the people of God, that is all throughout the Bible, by the way. It's everywhere. The Israelites in Egypt collectively groaning out to God to rescue them from slavery. Elijah in 1 Kings 18, he gives a, a public prayer when he confronts the prophets of Baal. Queen Esther, she calls for a corporate time of fasting and prayer before she approaches the king. Even the Lord Jesus himself, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the disciples with him to the Mount of Olives to pray. Now, they didn't do a very good job, but he at least grabbed them and took them with him. I could give you many more examples, but the, in the Bible, praying with others, it seems to be at least as common as praying alone. Well, looking at the research and the statistics that are out there, and even just anecdotally, in a lot of ways, I think our prayer lives can be described in two general statements. And this certainly doesn't apply to everyone, but I think typically these two statements can sum up our prayer lives. First, we really don't know how to pray. We want to pray. We probably try to pray, but we really don't know how. And second, we probably don't understand who we are praying to. And even if we do have a grasp of who this God is that we pray to, and we certainly should if we call ourselves Christians, we're probably tempted to have a low and earthly view of who this God is. Friends, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6, 9 to 13, it addresses each of those concerns. 
How do we pray and to whom are we praying to? The Lord's Prayer, this family prayer that we're looking at, it can be divided into six petitions. The first three in verses 9 and 10 are focused directly on God. The next three in verses 11 to 13 focus on us and focus on our needs. And last week we looked at the first petition in verse 9. We considered together the fatherhood of God and how we Christians, we can truly call God our father. And although God is is personal, we're going to see that again today, he's personal in the relationship that he has with his children, he's also unlike us. His name rightly deserves reverence and honor and glory. Well, today, we're going to look at the second and third petition or, or prayers in verse 10. And these prayers, they focus specifically on God's kingdom and on his will. And really, in in looking at verse 10, we're looking for the answers to the two statements that I made earlier. What is Jesus teaching us here about God and about himself? And what is Jesus teaching us about prayer? Let's read the five verses that make up the Lord's Prayer again together. I want us to have the whole thing sort of in front of us. And then we're going to zero in specifically on verse 10. By the way, if you do not have a Bible... um, We want you to have one and have it in front of you as we're going through God's word. So if you don't have a Bible, please come see me before you leave today. That will be our, one of our gifts to you. Uh, So come see me and get you a Bible if you don't, you don't have one. And if you do have one, make sure you bring it each week so that you have it in front of you. All right, let's read this together, starting in verse nine. Jesus said, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here's verse 10 where we're going to focus. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're going to address what Jesus is saying here when he says your kingdom come there in verse 10. But first, let's look at what is being implied. Because it's very important when it comes to our understanding of who it is that we're praying to. Here we see that God, the one that we Christians can address as our father, is also king. God is king. Psalm 10, 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Psalm 47, 7. For God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. Church, it's impossible for us to desire the kingdom if we don't know the king. The more we think about and the deeper we know the king, the more we long for the kingdom. So before we can even begin to think about praying, your kingdom come, we first have to think about the king. So what kind of king is our God? I've got four attributes that I want to put before you that I hope will cause you to long for his kingship. There's many more that we could talk about, but here's, here's just four. And my prayer is that they'll, they'll cause you as we think about these to long for his kingdom to come. So first, what kind, of, what kind of king is our God? God is a personal being. He's a personal king. Here's what I mean by that statement. God desires to be in relationship with his people. 
He wants to be known. He wants to be experienced by us. The God of the Bible is not some sort of divine watchmaker that sets everything into motion and then just steps back and lets everything play out. No, our God is involved in every little detail of our lives. Psalm 23, David says that the Lord is my shepherd. Shepherds are closely involved in the lives of their sheep. And our God is closely and lovingly involved in the lives of his children. I have no idea what you might think about when you think about a king. But when I think of a king, I sort of think of this high and mighty ruler off in the distance that really has little care for for his subjects, for the people that are beneath them. Like as long as they're, they're doing their thing and behaving and making me money or whatever, I'm good. Just let them do their thing. I'm, I'm distant from them. That's what I think about, at least when I think about a king and his rule. Really, one of the last characteristics I think we would use to describe a king is personal. What's stunning about the, the character of God is he is the highest and most mighty ruler of all, yet he's intimately personal with his people. He formed us all in our mother's womb. He breathed life into Adam. He's breathed life into all of us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And church, the high and mighty God, he wants to commune with us. You may feel like God is distant from you this morning. Maybe you're going through some kind of a relationship struggle. Maybe your spouse or a close friend has done you wrong. Maybe you're here today and you just feel downright depressed. I want you to know that the almighty God, the king of the universe, is a personal being who desires a close relationship with you. He desires to be with you. He desires to hear you cry out to him, to cast your anxieties and your worries and your cares on him. Church, God is a personal being and he cares about the lives of his people. Next, I'd like us to think about and remember that the king whose kingdom we long for is just. The king whose kingdom we long for is just. God is a God of justice. In a world where it seems like justice is hard to come by, we have to remember our king is just. Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. You ever experience any kind of injustice in your life? Or maybe even worse, has someone you love and care for, have they ever experienced some kind of injustice? When we hear about crimes committed against the helpless or people spending decades in jail for crimes that they didn't commit, it makes us angry. Surely in those moments, I'm not the only one who is tempted to doubt the justice of God. In those moments, brothers and sisters, let us remember the world now is not as it will be. When we pray your kingdom come, we are praying for the justice of God to be executed on this earth. And I have, I'll have a little bit more on that when we get to your will be done. But just the character of our God requires that his kingdom be one 
of justice. Now, although God is a God of justice, he's also a God of mercy. The king is a merciful king. When God passes before Moses in Exodus 34, the first attributes that he uses to describe himself are merciful and gracious. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, a really good question to ask right now is how can God be a God of justice and also a God of mercy? Those characteristics, they seem to be a little bit contradictory there. Justice and mercy. We don't think about those things together. Well, here's, here's the perfect example of that. God's justice and his, mer- his mercy perfectly displayed on the cross. Jesus, the same one who is teaching his disciples and who's teaching us to pray, he would bear the wrath. He would bear the justice of God on the cross and all who would turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ receive salvation. They receive mercy. Mercy and justice flowing from the same place. In Christ, we get what we absolutely do not deserve. We deserve the cross. We deserve that justice would be brought down on us. We deserve hell. No matter how good and how righteous you may think that you are, you deserve the justice of God. I deserve the justice of God. We've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And because we've committed such a great offense, we deserve infinite punishment. And that means eternal conscious torment in hell. That's what we deserve. But God loves his people and he loves them so much that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to die in the place of miserable sinners like you and me. God saves us in Christ. We're adopted into God's family through Christ. We deserve the justice. We deserve the justice to be brought on us, but we receive the mercy when we receive Christ by faith. Titus 3, 5. He saves us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The king extends mercy to all of us. And we receive it. We we take hold of that mercy when we receive Christ as Savior and Lord through faith. The king is a merciful king. Finally, the king is loving. God, our king, is loving. And this is probably the attribute that sounds most familiar to people. God is love. God is loving. We're familiar with that kind of language. But it's also the attribute of God that is most misunderstood. Love is an essential aspect of God's character. Indeed, he is the creator of love. Now, this topic is definitely worth its own sermon But for brevity's sake, I want want you to think again. If you want a picture of perfect love, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Jesus shed his blood on the cross in part out of love. 1 John 4, 9 to 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world 
so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you want to know what the love of the king looks like, the love of our king looks like, then look at the life of King Jesus. Love is on display in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, I need to go ahead and make this point just so that we're all clear. There's no confusion as we continue here. Jesus is just as much the king of the kingdom as God the Father. Jesus is just as much king of the kingdom as God the Father. When Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, he's talking about his reign. The reign of God and the reign of Christ are one in the same. There's there's no distinction between the two. And the kingship of Jesus, that is a huge theme throughout the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Throughout the book of Matthew, we see that the mission of Jesus is to establish God's kingship. That's why we see Jesus casting out demons and we see him healing the sick and and all other miracles that he performs. He's showing us that the kingdom of God is beginning to break through. He's inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus pretty much says this verbatim in Matthew 4, 17, when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the king because his kingship has been established through his ministry. So here's maybe a helpful way for you to think about it. And I want to explain this just real quick because I think it helps us to understand what we're praying and it helps us to pray. So think about it in sort of these terms. The kingdom of God, it is established, it's inaugurated through Christ. So Christ is the one who brings the kingdom. And the kingdom takes hold as the message of the kingdom, which is the gospel, the good news that human beings can be forgiven and reconciled to God. The kingdom takes hold as the gospel is declared and takes root in the hearts of God's people. And finally, the kingdom comes in its fullness when Christ returns. The book of Revelation, the the last book of the Bible, ends with Christ assuring us that he is coming. Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things, that's John, or I'm sorry, that's the Lord Jesus. Who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Those are Jesus' words. And then John writes, amen, come Lord Jesus. So in just a real quick sort of synopsis, when we pray your kingdom come, When we pray that prayer, we're praying that God would expand his saving reign on earth. And we're praying that God would bring his kingdom in its fullness. Expand your saving reign on the earth and bring your kingdom in your fullness, Lord. That's what we're saying when we pray, your kingdom come. And you should know that the concept of praying for the kingdom of of God to come in its fullness, this is not a new concept for the Jews who would have been listening. This was the prayer of all the Jews. In Zechariah 14, 9, it's talking about the day of the Lord. It's talking about the kingdom of God coming in its fullness. It says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So this isn't a new concept for, for the kingdom to come. Even the rabbis, they had a saying that went, that is no prayer in which no mention of the kingdom is made. Praying for the kingdom is not a new thing. It's not a new thing for God's people. 
The Jewish people, again, who are listening to Jesus teach them to say this, they're probably nodding their heads, probably saying amen as Jesus is saying this. And the problem, though, the problem for those listening to Jesus here and, friends, the same problem for us is when we begin to misunderstand the nature of the kingdom. Remember when Jesus, he was before Pilate in John 18, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's outside of our normal way of thinking. We have to be careful, really careful, not to impose our earthly view of kingdom on the biblical description of God's kingdom. The kingdom is not brought about by a political party or some charismatic religious leader. It's not how it, that's not how it goes forth. The kingdom takes hold as the gospel saves sinners. And the kingdom comes in its fullness when Christ returns. And this prayer for the kingdom to come is a prayer. This is, I think this is really cool. This is a prayer that we can have 100% confidence that God will answer. God will answer this prayer. You know, most of the time when we pray, we're not really sure what the answer will be. God may answer with a yes. He might say maybe or no, or not right now. Sometimes it's flat out no. But when we pray, your kingdom come, we know that God is going to answer this prayer. So why why should we pray a prayer that we know God will answer? It's a logical question, right? The easiest answer is because he tells us to. He tells us to. And we participate in the eternal plan and purpose of God when we pray, your kingdom come. And when we do that, We experience joy and purpose and meaning in our life. Church, knowing who God is, understanding his attributes, and again, there are many, it helps us to long for the kingdom, which leads us to cry out, your kingdom come. I can't help but pose another question here for us to think about, and that's why do we often fail to to pray this? Why do we fail to pray your kingdom come? Is it because we don't know the king? That's a possibility, right? Is it because we're so wrapped up and satisfied in this life that we don't even long for the kingdom? It's a possibility as well. Maybe we don't long for the kingdom because we're too busy trying to establish our own kingdom here on earth. Christian, your job is not to build your own kingdom. Instead, we declare the good news of the kingdom. We pray that the the kingdom would come and we live out lives of righteousness as members of the kingdom. There's a lot more we could say. Think of, when we talk about the kingdom of God, like there are books and books and books written on that. There's a lot more that we could say, but let's go ahead and turn our attention to the third petition in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus says, your will be done. So there's a, there's a temptation here to use those words as sort of a, a springboard to talk about the will of God in sort of a, a big picture kind of way. But here, really what Jesus is, is teaching us to pray is for righteousness to be practiced. He's teaching us here to pray for justice. Here Jesus is talking about the ethical will of God. He's talking about the moral will that God desires of his people. We, we Christians... We're under a special obligation 
to fulfill the moral will of God. Now, Christ fulfills that perfectly for us, but our obedience to the moral will of God is a foundational element of our lives as Christians. We're even going to see in a couple weeks, whenever we, probably more than a couple weeks, whenever we get here, that Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount with a parable illustrating that those who fail to do what he says are fools, and those who obey him are wise. Church, the Christian's rule of life is God's revealed will. We conduct our lives based on what God tells us to do. So many of us, we get, we get wrapped up and we get tripped up in making decisions because we want to know, what is, what is God's will for me here? What is God's will for me in this decision? Am I, am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to do that? Lord, what do you want me to do? And really, that's not the primary thing that needs to be on our mind. Instead, we need to first concern ourselves with what God has already told us to do. God's sovereign hand will guide us as we live lives of obedience in accordance to the revealed will of God. Now, I'm not saying that we will never walk through painful providences in our lives, because we certainly will. God will lead us into places that are difficult. Can anybody else testify to that? God will do that, right? But our attention must be directed first to what God has already revealed for us to do. What has God already told us to do? What college should I go to? Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Those kinds of big questions, they're important. We should pray, we should seek wise counsel before we make big decisions like this. But if our lives are already outside of the moral will of God, our decisions in regard to these sort of things, they're already in big trouble. So if we're going to pray, your will be done, we need to know what his will is. Not the sovereign will that hides behind everything that happens, because we're never going to know that. We're never going to figure all of that out. But the revealed will of God, we clearly see in the Bible. So if you want to know the will of God, you first have to study and read your Bible. And if you don't know how to read, ask somebody to read it for you. Receive, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, obey what God has already said. When we pray, your will be done, We're praying that God's righteousness would be displayed in our lives individually. And we're praying that God's righteousness would be displayed on earth in the same way that it is in heaven. The first half of the Lord's Prayer, it closes with a defining clause that echoes this. Jesus teaches us to pray that God's name be kept holy, that his kingdom come, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is the place where the answers to each of those prayers, they are currently on display in their fullness. Heaven is where these things are realized. They're they're on display in in their fullness, but the day is coming where we'll see the answers to the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer here on earth. We will see God answer our prayers here on earth. The Lord's name will be kept holy. His kingdom will come. His will will be done perfectly and at all, the, and all times. All the time, his will will be done perfectly. 
Church, we keep our eyes fixed on our Father God who is King, and we pray in the manner that he taught us to pray. And the the structure of Jesus' prayer here, it teaches us. We begin by directing our prayers specifically towards God. That's where we begin. And only after that do we begin to focus on our individual needs. Well, every week that we gather together for worship, we pray, we sing, we study God's word, and we take communion together. And these sort of things, they are the ordinary means of grace that God uses to strengthen our faith and grow us as Christians. It, it's not rocket science if you want to grow in your Christian life. There are lots of things that God uses that are important, but gathering with the saints of God to pray, to study the scriptures, to take communion, it will nourish us in our Christian life and it will grow us. When we take communion together, we remember that Christ's blood was shed for us. That he is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father even now. That he's coming back again to establish his kingdom now and forever. He is going to do that. We long for that and look forward to that. And if we don't, I'm afraid we don't really know the king. If you don't long for his kingdom to come, you probably don't know the king. Because if you did, you would long for it every day of your life. Every day of your life. By faith, when we take communion, we also experience real spiritual nourishment in our lives. I love that we get to do this every Sunday together as a church. So if you're a professing follower of Jesus Christ, this meal is open to you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, seriously, we are, we're so glad that you're here. We're glad that you would come here to maybe learn more about Jesus or if someone brought you and promised you lunch or something afterwards. We're, we're glad that you're here, sincerely. We're glad that you're here. Um, but this meal is not for you. It's not for you. But we hope that you will use this time to really think about what you've heard today. Not only what you've heard, but hopefully what you've experienced as well. And if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, who is this Jesus you guys keep talking about? If you have questions, we would love to talk more with you. So talk to the person that brought you. Talk to me. Talk to anyone you've seen up front here today. We want to explain to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Well, communion will be served at two stations here at the front. And when you feel led, as you feel led, go ahead and make your way forward and you can receive the body, and the blood. And then go back to your seat, and again, as you feel led, you can go ahead and and take that. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to continue in our worship of God this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make it the cry of our hearts, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We praise you for this time. We thank you that you desire to meet with us. We thank you that you fill us, that you sustain us, that you keep us. God, we pray that you would cause us to be be people who let your light shine through us so people might see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven. God, we pray that you'd use us for your glory. We love you, Lord Jesus. 
Be with us as we continue to worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.